Hi, I'm Cleve Jones, and you should be standing right in front of the entrance to the Harvey Milk Civil Rights Academy. You want the doors next to the mosaics, uh, a bit down the hill. If you look across the street, you can see the beautiful giant rainbow flag. We'll be walking around that flag a couple of times on this walk. There's a reason to start this story at a school and not somewhere more obvious like the base of the rainbow flag or the Castro movie theater. I want to start here because this is a public school, a public elementary school for regular, everyday public school kids. And yet it's named for a gay rights hero. Maybe that's not so shocking today, but when I was in elementary school in the 1960s, the very idea that a public elementary school would be named for a man who told everyone in the world he was gay and who dedicated his life to the battle for gay rights, that was impossible. As a child, I didn't even know to dream of that. And when I first came to San Francisco in the 1970s, people across the country were actually trying to ban gay people from working in the schools. A lot has changed. So walk over to the mosaic. My favorite mosaic is the one in the middle. It shows the brown hand and the blue hand clasping, and then all around it are quotes. And we have to get a little closer to see the quotes. But if you look closely, you can see quotes from Anne Frank and Martin Luther King and even Dwight Eisenhower. And a great quote from Harvey Milk, come out, come out, wherever you are. Every gay person must come out. Harvey was always telling everybody that we had to come out of the closet. You must tell your immediate family. Brothers and sisters, you must come out. You must come out. You must tell your friends if indeed they are your friends. Harvey felt that once... Americans came to understand that they all had gay people in their lives, that it would become increasingly difficult for them to hate and fear and vote to take away our rights. Once you do, you will feel so much better. Meeting Harvey Milk was the single most important event of my life, and I've really done my best to continue his fight, our fight, over all these years, organizing and protesting, creating a giant quilt to honor the memory of people who were killed by AIDS, or just, you know, telling Harvey's story and the story of this neighborhood. Like when I helped make the movie Milk, I'm the curly-headed boy in it. Emil Hirsch plays me. So that's the story I want to tell you on this walk. It, it is my story, but it's also the story of how the Castro became a place where a regular public school could be named for an openly gay hero. I should take just a moment to say something about the word gay. When I joined the movement, it was called gay liberation. Now there's a whole list of adjectives and letters, LGBT, GLBTQ, LGBTQQIAA. Today I'm just going to use the word gay, but I use it to describe all of us. So let's walk, and uh, we're going to start by keeping the Harvey Milk Civil Rights Academy on our left, and we're going to walk uphill a little bit. And if you look up ahead, you'll see the sign that says Diamond Street, and that's the way we're heading. And here, as we're walking up, you see the picture of Harvey when he still had kind of long hair and a mustache. That's <laughs> like the the last one, the kid that has the little sign that says, I hate war. <laughs> We're going to sort of circle around first before we get into the heart of the Castro. I want to make our first arc around the flag a wider one, because some of my first encounters with San Francisco were in that wider loop along the beautiful side streets and secret stairs of San Francisco. We're crossing Diamond Street and going up the hill. This is the first of many hills we'll be climbing up and down, so I hope you're wearing your walking shoes. Keep going up the street. My childhood was a fairly normal late 50s, early 60s family experience. All white, no crime. Families stayed together, happily or unhappily. But by sixth, seventh grade, I started to become aware that I was different I remember there was one boy, I think his name was Carl. <laughs> he kept calling me these names, and I was crying, and, you know, why, why are you calling me that? What does that even mean? And he said, you're a homosexual, and you're going to go to hell, and you're sick. 
So I looked it up, <laughs> and that was how I learned what a homosexual was. All right. We're going to cross Eureka Street, and then we're going to turn right. If you look to your left up the hill, during the late 70s, I attended fantastic parties in every one of these one, two, three, four, five, six buildings. Yeah, just cross right. So we're walking down Eureka Street, down the hill now. I think today it's easy for people to forget just how incredibly different it was when I was a child. Because not only was I deemed sick and sinful, but it was also illegal and people like me were sent to prison. And I understood that at a very, very early age. My father had some serious back problems and every other week or so I would get into their medicine chest and steal pills, which I saved up in case I got caught. So I had an exit strategy. When I see the stories today about these children that are killing themselves, I know what they feel. So we're going to stop at 150 Eureka, the home of the Metropolitan Community Church. I never would have thought I would be welcome in any church, and this was the first church created by gay people for gay people. Just stand here for a moment at 150 Eureka. I have no idea what you're going to be looking at because we've just learned that the building has been sold. Whatever there is there now, there once was a church with purple doors that welcomed gay people and was part of the community we were building here. And across the street was a very handsome Latino lawyer named Felix who I was very much in love with. <laughs> I'm hoping when you are walking down this sidewalk that they haven't torn out all of the memorial plaques. Many of these are in memory of people from this congregation who passed away from AIDS. I knew Steve Warren. I knew Mark Etheridge. The first time I ever read about this church was in the Year in Review issue of Life magazine from 1971. I would hide out in my high school library and pretend to have a lung disease so I didn't have to go to gym class because I got beat up too much. And I was hiding out there one day and I read that magazine and it was the first time I learned that there was a movement for people like me. So now we're going to keep walking in the same direction. It was a big story called Homosexuals in Revolt. <laughs> I saw photographs of young gay men that looked like me with long hair with their fists in the air confronting armed police officers. I saw pictures of men embracing men and women embracing women. I, I learned, you know, in a matter of just minutes that this whole movement existed that I was completely unaware of. I remember knowing that as soon as I got out of high school, I would go wherever I needed to go to, to meet these people and to join and to fight with them. So we're at uh, 18th and Eureka now. So we're going to cross the street and stay on Eureka Street and head up the slight hill before us. You'll see the beautiful teal-colored Victorian building on the corner. There's some beautiful trees here. There used to be more, but last year in the storm, one of them was uprooted by the winds and crushed my pickup truck into a pancake. So that's what I think of when I walk by this corner, is my poor Tacoma. <laughs> I think I knew in my heart all along that there was nothing wrong with me. But in Life magazine, I received this confirmation. I felt the shame of it kind of melt away. And with that came the possibility of love, the possibility of sex, the possibility of connecting with people. I flushed the pills down the toilet. So now we're crossing over Market on Eureka. 
and we're going to head up to 17th Street. It's funny how you can wake up one morning and be a certain person and later that same day be a completely different person and that happened to me. So we're going to stay on Eureka Street and head up this hill. Hey Morgan, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm sorry, I, I can't be walking around my neighborhood without running into people. So, so what grade are you in now? Ninth grade. Oh my god, I hated ninth grade. It's not fun. <laughs> yeah, everyone hates you. How's your mom and how's grandma? Uh, she's good, yeah. I'm actually going over to Molly Stone's to get cake flour and egg whites. Because uh -huh. I'm making her an angel food cake. A good kid. <laughs> I try. Nice to see you, Cleo. <laughs> Take care, dear. Bye-bye. So now, you should be at the corner of Eureka and 17th Street under the neon sign for the Eureka Market. We're going to cross the street. We are now crossing 17th Street. And we're going to turn left and go up the hill. It's a very, very steep hill that goes up and connects our neighborhood to the Haight-Ashbury. And I will get out of breath. We who were gay who arrived in the early 1970s were continuing the migration that had been going on with the Summer of Love and all of the kids that were going to San Francisco to be hippies. And it was about free love and free sex and free drugs. This block has some of the really great Victorians of the neighborhood. I particularly am fond of the one with the blue and gold and I guess that's brick trim. We're gonna keep walking up this hill we're going to pass Douglas Street, just cross over, keep on 17th Street. We're going to walk one more block. On your left, there's a little parklet. When I talk to young people about my life, I always say, you know, I joined the movement when I was 13, and it was the movement to end the war in Vietnam. My mother, out of fear of conscription for me, decided that we should start attending Quaker meeting the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement. All of these social justice campaigns were constantly being discussed. And for me, the most startling part was suddenly to discover that this global movement for social justice had a part of it that was for me. So now you're probably a little bit out of breath and you get to Ord, just cross Ord Street and turn right onto Ord off of 17th Street. If you look to your right, you see the peak of Corona Heights, which we call Red Rock because obviously the large red rock at the top. I was very well aware that the treatment for homosexuality included electroconvulsive shock treatments and lobotomies. So I felt that I could not tell anybody until I was 18 because I was pretty sure my father would have me committed to a psychiatric institute. Look at that cute little baby. Hi. <laughs> he just woke up. Take care. All right, now we're at the corner of Ord and Saturn. And Saturn is one of many hidden staircases in the city. And they're just these magical little places hidden away inside the big city. So I'd invite you to go left up the Saturn stairway. Just walk up until you get a view of the below us. I promise you this is the last hill we'll be climbing on this walk around. When you get to the first landing, take a little bit of a left and go over the brick pathway and then continue up. These gardens are all maintained by the residents who live along here. And I'm going to catch my breath. You should too. Notice the curb your dog sign, so if you've got a dog with you, please don't let it pee or poop. Okay, so we're standing on the landing now. I'm standing here on a perfectly clear blue crystal day, and hope you are as well. Quite lovely. When you look down over the city, in the far distance, the very, very far distance, you can see Mount Diablo. You can also see a sliver of the bay itself, and uh, it was the Bay Bridge that brought me to San Francisco for my very first visit when I had just graduated from high school, and my church youth group was having a conference in the East Bay, 
And some friends drove me across the bridge and the fog was piling up on Twin Peaks and just beginning to pour down the hills like the hill we're standing on now. If you want, you can take a rest on that bench while I tell you about it. There was a, a coffee roasting plant just south of the Bay Bridge and I, I remember rolling down the windows and smelling the, the coffee and the ocean and the fog and thinking it was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen in my life. But the main thing was seeing gay people. Everywhere I went in the city, I saw people wearing shirts that said gay power, and I would see boys walking down Polk Street holding hands, and I knew at that point that I would had found my home, my, my real home. But I couldn't stay. I had to go back. I wasn't 18 yet. All right, from here, I'm going to take you down into the heart of the Castro, and on the way, I'll tell you more about my own arrival in San Francisco. So uh, let's go back down the stairs now. Yeah, you can take either staircase you want, back down to Ord Street, and then we'll turn left again. Meow. Meow. This cat quite clearly owns the stairway. Hi. When you get to the base of the stairs, you're back on Ord, and we're going to turn left and continue towards the uh, hill there. When I finally hitchhiked back to the city to stay at 18, I couldn't believe the architecture in San Francisco, the Victorians and the Edwardians, and the way all the houses were pushed so close together, and how you could walk down a sidewalk and and really just four feet away on the other side of a wall people were eating or drinking or sleeping or making love and the incredible diversity of people of course when i first moved to san francisco i lived in a neighborhood that's very different from these peaceful streets i landed in the tenderloin and uh, particularly on polk street which was where the gay kids went back then especially those who'd been kicked out by their families i had no place to live and I would sleep in doorways. I would get older guys to take me home, sleep in parks. We were street kids. So here you are at Vulcan Stairway, another one of our hidden staircases. And this is one where I actually lived. Look up to the second landing on the right, the house with two bay windows. That was where I lived with a guy named Bob Stemple. Back when I was 18, Bob found me starving on Polk Street and took pity on me and fed me and looked after me. Later, we were roommates right here. So if you now look east, which is away from the staircase, you'll see a sign that says dead end, and then to the right, a series of very cute little houses, and some that look almost like uh, chalets from the mountains. And you're gonna go in the little alley doesn't immediately look like a public road, but you just walk up that little alley and you'll see it opens up. So you're heading towards the bay at this point. And you walk down this little alley. Imagine living here and you'll see a staircase ahead of you. And we'll go down those stairs together. So now we're gonna walk down Douglas Street. Cross over to the far side of the street on the way down so you can get a better view. Uh, Look down Douglas Street and then look up and you'll see the crest line of some hills filled with beautiful old Victorians and Edwardians. Nothing like the neighborhood that I landed in on Polk Street and in the Tenderloin back in the early 70s. Let me paint you a picture of that world before it gets forgotten completely. This is Gay San Francisco, an inside look at the life of San Francisco's homosexuals. On Polk Street then, there were probably, I don't know, maybe as many as 20 gay bars. Uh, at 2 o'clock in the morning, there'd be hundreds, if not thousands, of people out. They number 90,000 at least, according to police department figures. Only at night do they show their true color. And I loved hanging out with my gang, but there were parts of it that were, that were gruesome. I mean, we all got jobs, but they were minimum wage jobs. So we did what we had to do to survive. 
We stole food. We sold drugs. We sold ourselves. Having sex with somebody you're not attracted to, you know, it's not, uh, it's not a great thing. And there were hundreds and hundreds of boys just like me. Every time a Greyhound bus pulled up, there'd be, you know, 50 more boys coming to Polk Street. One memory I have is of just spending enormous amounts of time just walking. During the nighttime, I'd maybe get a cup of coffee if I could afford it, and I would just walk and walk and walk and walk. As you approach the corner of 17th and Douglas, we're going to be turning left now and going down the hill. And if you move over close to the edge of the sidewalk after you turn, you can just catch a glimpse of the rainbow flag. So turn left and walk down the hill towards the rainbow flag. So now just keep walking down 17th Street. We're heading to Castro Street now, and I'm going to tell you the roundabout way I finally got here from the Tenderloin. My life began to stabilize rather quickly. I got this job selling Time Life books. I started going to a few meetings to do with the war, uh, gay liberation meetings, protests, and I was aware of Harvey Milk going door to door, passing out campaign literature, but I was skeptical that electoral politics would bring about the kind of revolution that I still believed in. Then my life would take another strange turn. I spent most of 75, 76, and 77 hitchhiking. As it happened, I got to Barcelona at the end of June in time for the first gay march in Spanish history. General Franco had died the year before, and they were about to have their first free elections. Suddenly, I look up and I see what seems to be a group of gay people. I began to hear this rhythmic clapping and whistles, and from all these different winding side streets, hundreds and then thousands of gay people poured into the center and marched. The cops shot tear gas at us and rubber bullets, and we built huge barricades in the streets out of cafe tables. And, <laughs> and then when I got back to the hotel, I wrote an account of what I had seen. And I sent it to a guy, showed it to Harvey Milk, and he gave it to the gay newspaper called The Sentinel. That was a pivotal day. I discovered this other person that I could be that uh, was not the least bit shy at all. Hey, Duray. This block is distinguished by having some of the ugliest apartment buildings across from some of the cutest old Victorians. And I want you to just use the crosswalk here and cross over 17th Street. So we're not going down Diamond Street. We're just going to continue down on 17th, the same direction we've been going, but on the other side of the street. When I returned after my travels in 1977, the gay rights movement was really accelerating. And two really important things were happening in this country. Cities and states were finally beginning to pass the very first laws to protect gay people against discrimination and to throw out the outdated laws that criminalized homosexual behavior. It was very exciting, but at the same time, there was a backlash. This religious conservative woman out of Florida, Anita Bryant, she started an all-out war. The normal majority of Americans have had enough. She raised huge amounts of money from conservative Christians all across the country to overturn the new laws that were beginning to protect gay people. In particular, she wanted to keep gay people from working in schools. We all believe in human rights, but we don't believe uh, human rights that would corrupt our children. Now, let's stop for a moment right up here at the top of this little triangular garden and look down again at the rainbow flag. Right here is where we mobilized to counter the Anita Bryants of the world and to fight for our rights. But Anita Bryant was a force to be reckoned with. In victory last night, she talked about taking her anti-gay campaign on the road. Every time there was a defeat anywhere in the country, we gathered here at this intersection and raised our voices and marched. And we began to raise our own money. 
An estimated 5,000 homosexuals and supporters of gay rights marched through the streets of downtown San Francisco last night. That's when I really started talking with Harvey Milk more and more. He'd been running again and again for a seat on the city's board of supervisors. And I began to think maybe he wasn't crazy after all. I'll tell you more after we wander through this little parklet. Watch your step. This is the Pink Triangle Park and Memorial to commemorate the gay people who died in the Holocaust. The Pink Triangle, which was assigned to the gay people in the death camps of Nazi Germany. And then you walk down the little tiny pathway. And then across the street, you see the rainbow flag, and you're in the middle of my neighborhood. Now stop for a moment at the bottom of the Pink Triangle Park. You can rest against that electrical box or the lamppost if you want. So the Pink Triangle was an early emblem for gay people, but lots of people didn't like it. We hadn't chosen it. We'd been branded with it. When I got back from my travels, one of my closest friends was a really crazy drag queen named Gilbert Baker. But he was also a very political person, and he and I had many conversations about the need for a symbol. A symbol that would unite and describe and inspire this new movement. And it was his idea to build a rainbow flag. And I got to help him dye the fabric for the very first two rainbow flags. <laughs> I have to say this park is poorly designed. There's no good way to get out of here. But I think the best thing to do is cross the street to your left right now, even though there's no crosswalk. That's 17th, just cross over to the brick sidewalk. Watch for cars. And we're going down to the large crosswalk so we can head over to the plaza where the flag is. In the fall of 77, I had campaigned for Harvey Milk uh, in his last campaign. And Harvey said that he wanted me to start organizing students. So I became sort of the street captain. I would r run the marches. And people just knew if gay people anywhere have been attacked, if we've, had, if we've suffered a defeat, meet at Castro and Market at sunset. So now we're at the crosswalk, and we're going to cross the street to Harvey Milk Plaza. We take over Market Street, we march thousands of people down Market Street to Polk, up Polk, past City Hall, run screaming up the hill to the top of Knob Hill, make a turn around Grace Cathedral, and then come thundering down Powell Street. These are steep hills. Okay, so if you're standing right now at the corner of Castro and Market, and you're looking towards the rainbow flag, you'll see these concrete planters with beautiful landscaping. In the 1970s, that had not yet been built and the whole station was under construction and was covered with large plywood boxes. And those boxes became our stages. So maybe we can start moving down. Just using telephone trees and staple gun and a bullhorn, we had the ability to turn 15,000 people out in two or three hours. Out of the bars, into the street! Out of the bars, into the street! So I want you to take a minute and just walk down the stairs as if you were going to go into the subway station. This was one of the first municipal tributes to Harvey Milk. They named the plaza after him. You'll see the historic markers for Harvey Milk with photographs of his campaign. On the pillar there, you see the, the plaque to Harvey. Though I have to say that image of his face looks nothing like him. <laughs> Take a good look at these pictures. In November of 1977, we won a great victory. And at the same time, had to brace ourselves for a truly, potentially horrible setback. Uh, and this one would be right here in California. A state senator from Orange County named John Briggs announced that he was going to pass a law to make it illegal for gay people to work in any capacity in any public school in the state of California. To protect our children, to defend our families, and to restore decency and morality to California government. This was really a scary moment for all of us uh, because we knew he could do it. 
as he was announcing that, Harvey Milk ran his last campaign and won and was elected to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. Harvey Milk on his way to City Hall. At his side, his gay lover. Through the summer of 1978, it was just all about beating John Briggs and enjoying Harvey Milk as a city supervisor. There was a celebration on the steps of City Hall when he arrived. It is well known that I'm a gay person, and in this state, there is a law that says gay people cannot be married, but there is no law that says two human beings cannot love one another. I have a loved one. Uh, unfortunately, he is too nervous to be here. He left. I became an intern and got to go to City Hall every day and work in Harvey's office. He had this thing about you could never take the elevator at City Hall. You had to walk up the grand stairway there because it was such a beautiful building and it was ours now. Every time we entered the building was a celebration of that insurgency. I got this old stupid suit and I wore it and he said, no, 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 you, I want you to wear jeans, tight jeans. Now let's climb those stairs and head up back to Castro Street. I have no way of backing this claim up, but I, I think that by 78, the Castro neighborhood was probably 80% gay men, and we adopted a look, and we, we wore button-fly Levi's with one button left un unbuttoned, and we wore flannel shirts. It was called the Castro clone look. Okay, so when you get to the top of the stairs, uh, stop for a moment and imagine this plaza back in the 70s. It wasn't all politics, of course. It was also an amazing non-stop party. And whenever we got a chance, we'd block this street entirely and build a big stage right here where you're standing. And hundreds of thousands of people would just drop everything and come down here and dance in the street. It was the beginning of the disco era. And for gay people, that was represented uh, most fabulously by the incredible Sylvester, who I met my first night in San Francisco. He wore amazing jewelry and tiaras and scarves. And whenever I was putting on a rally, I would always invite him to sing, and he never once turned me down. All right. So before we go, I want you to look across Castro Street at the Twin Peaks Tavern. It's the bar with the big plate glass windows. I'd come from Phoenix, and to go to a gay bar, you had to park blocks away, scurry through dark alleys to a back door with no number, no sign, no windows. So when I came here and saw a gay bar with plate glass windows so that anybody walking by could easily look in and see who was in that bar. I was just astounded by that reality. And we're gonna cross the street now and take a look at it. When we were young and impertinent and stupid and didn't know that someday we would be old and white-haired, we called it the glass coffin. <laughs> or twin shrieks. Take a look inside these windows, just like I did when I first got here. Old gay men, having fun. What I'd had in my mind was the worst thing about being gay would be to get old. That, you know, how horrible would that be to be an old gay man? <laughs> and uh, I saw all these old gay men drinking and laughing, and they looked very happy to me. And now, let's go next door to Hot Cookie. Got my first job here at Hot Cookie. It wasn't Hot Cookie then, it was called the Double Rainbow Ice Cream Store. And let's just go inside. I scooped ice cream here for a couple of years. If it's looking too crowded in there, you can stay out here and just look in the window. But know that the cookies are really good. And you might want to check out the collage of hot cookie underwear photos on the walls on either side. Hey, Dan. 
My friend Dan uh, owns this store, and my friend Emily is the manager. Hey, is Emily around? They're famous for their chocolate penis cookies. <laughs> so grab yourself a penis cookie. Hey, Emily, come say hi. Hi. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you, love? I'm good. Oh, so good to see you. She's the manager of the place, and she's always sending me little messages about how much she appreciates the history. So that means a lot to me at 60. My father is a preacher, and my mom does work for the Catholic Church. So when I came here and I met Cleve, it was like a change, you know, like, why didn't I learn about you in my schools or something? I now have, like, a role model that I didn't have. Whenever I run into Emily, it pretty much makes my day. He just keeps fighting the fight for all of us, and it's, I, like, I want to be like that. Like, uh, sorry. <laughs> He's changed people, and I, I want to be like that. I love her. So tip the servers, and then we'll keep walking. And you're heading towards the fabulous, historic, amazing Castro Theater. And it's the home of many a campy, crazy, outlandish sing-along. But mostly, it's just one of the most beautiful movie theaters in the world. You know. I, I realize as we walk in here that there's probably more underwear on display in these two blocks than anywhere else. <laughs> this was a pretty sleepy little neighborhood when the gay people started arriving, and some of the old families that lived here weren't real happy with the changes. But some of the people who lived here welcomed the new arrivals. And among those were the Aston family, the Aston family opened Cliff's Variety back in 1932. My friend Harry runs the place. Our place in this community is about community. When the gay people first came to the neighborhood, the Aston family reached out to Harvey Milk. They hired gay people and... Today we carry everything from boas and tiaras to hammers and nails and everything in between. And it's right up here on your left. Just keep walking down Castro Street. Harvey and I lived a few doors down from each other on the next block. He opened his camera store on Castro Street and lived above it. He was a terrible businessman. I don't think he ever made much money at the camera store. But he used it as a political base and as a place to register voters, to get people ready for the fight against the Briggs Initiative, the proposition to ban gay people from working in public schools. This would be the first statewide fight over gay rights anywhere in the country. You should be at 18th Street now. Take the Rainbow Crosswalk and keep going down Castro Street. Let's keep walking. We'll stop near the end of the block at 575 Castro Street. By the fall of 78, I was working in Harvey's office full-time on organizing against the Briggs Initiative. Which would let schools fire homosexual teachers. And we teachers were knocking on every door and saying, please, I'm a gay man, or I'm a lesbian woman, or my kid is gay, or my daughter's lesbian. Please don't vote for this. We had lost this battle in so many other places. We raised money in San Francisco and LA, and then I took the money and went to smaller communities three or four people who would meet me in a library somewhere. It was always very surreptitious. Meanwhile, Harvey debated John Briggs up and down the state. I was born of heterosexual parents. I was taught by heterosexual teachers. Just before the election, one night, Harvey asked me to come and talk with him privately, and he said, I think we're going to lose. What do you think will happen when we lose? And I said, I think we'll probably burn down the city. And he said, let's not burn down our neighborhood. <laughs> and then we won. <laughs> we won statewide. Mayor George Moscone was cheered for his support. This is your night. I want to show you something here. Let's stop for a minute in front of the Human Rights Campaign Shop. It's at 575 Castro. 
If you look up at the building in front of you, over the Human Rights Campaign sign, you see a painting of Harvey looking out the window. Harvey, I think, was the first adult to say that the me that I wanted to be was the me I should be, and that that person had value and was useful. Harvey lived in this building, and the ground floor here was the location of the camera store. My apartment was just a couple of doors down. We were very aware that we'd managed to carve out this little community, two blocks where we could hold hands with our boyfriends, where we could be ourselves. But even here, we were never completely safe. You know, you, you, you really have to remember that only a few years earlier, they'd been regularly bursting into gay bars and beating people up and arresting us just for being gay. There was still no love between gay people and the cops. We knew that what we had was still very tenuous and could be swept away in the blink of an eye. Let's keep walking up Castro Street in the same direction we've been going. We'll stop at the corner. A few weeks after we beat the Briggs Initiative... I'm walking down the street, and then the 24 Divisadero pulled up, and a girl yelled at me out the window, Cleve, Cleve, um, it's on the radio. Somebody shot the mayor. As president of the Board of Supervisors, it's my duty to make this announcement. Both Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk have been shot and killed. You should be at 19th. I want you to cross Castro to your right. Okay, we've crossed the street and we're heading back down towards the rainbow flag. The moment I heard that Harvey had been shot, I jumped in a taxi, went in City Hall, and I remember running and yelling, Harvey, where are you? Um, and I see Diane Feinstein coming towards me and she's holding her hand out and there's blood on her hand. And then I look beyond her and I could see Harvey's feet. What kept going through my head was it's over. And then the sun went down and the people began to gather, you know. And we walked in absolute silence probably 50,000 people carrying candles down Market Street, gay and lesbian people and straight people and young and old and black and brown and white. Every type of person that lives in our city was there. At that point, I knew I, that I was wrong. It wasn't over. Keep walking down to the end of this block. I'm going to tell you the story of what happened to the man who murdered Harvey and Mayor Moscone. He was a supervisor, too. He'd been a cop and a firefighter and had friends all over the police department. And his trial was a farce. Stop at the end of this block next to a bar named Harvey's. On May 21st, 1979, I was in my apartment and uh, the phone rang. Manslaughter for Moscone, manslaughter for milk. He got off. And my first response was to vomit. The reaction to the manslaughter verdict came quickly in San Francisco. We did an impromptu press conference and expressed our outrage and uh, ran back to my apartment to get Harvey's bullhorn. And I'd like to see us move down to 18th Street and start it from there to get the people out of the bars and into the streets. Then began not really marching, but more running down Market Street towards City Hall. It was twilight, and they were chanting, he got away with murder, he got away with murder. Dan White was a cop. Dan White was a cop. The police are now moving out into the crowd. It was so clear that people were going to get hurt. You should be standing next to a bar. Take a look around while I finish this story. A lot happened right here, in this bar, at this very corner, 
and in these streets. It has now broken loose. Cops are now bashing heads. A group of us got together and just began chanting, slow down, slow down. And they picked up the chant, slow down, slow down. Don't run, don't run, slow down, don't run, slow down, don't run. Turn around, fight back, slow down, don't run, turn around, fight back. And this crazy mob of panicking, furious people slowed down, stopped running, turned around, and threw themselves against the police officers. Many police cars were burned. Cars exploding and people screaming. So we have this huge riot, and then everybody decides to go back to Castro Street. And a lot of people came to this bar right here. And the police burst in and started clubbing people and smashing up the furniture in the bar. Right here in this space, they were beating people bloody. And then 1,000, and then 2,000, and then 3,000 furious people chanting, cops get out, cops get out. It was the most violent uprising in the entire history of the movement. It changed everything. I think there was a great deal of pride in it. Don't push us too hard or we will fight back. We will not be acquiescent sissies just taking your abuse anymore. We're not going to do that. This bar used to be called the Elephant Walk. Now it's called Harvey's in his honor. Inside, there are pictures of Harvey all over, and there's even a picture of me I want to show you. We were so young then. So find the entrance to Harvey's. It's on 18th. Then walk to the first window to the right of the door. Now look through that window. To the wall on the left, there's a picture hanging by itself above the booth. You see the curly-headed kid with the striped t-shirt? <laughs> That's me. It was my birthday. And even though Harvey had debated John Briggs that day, he remembered and brought me that donut with a candle in it. I was 24 years old, and you can see how incredibly happy I was. All right, we're gonna head up 18th Street. We're going just a few doors up the street. Oh my gosh, it's Armistead Maupin. How are you? I'm well, how are you? What are we having dinner? I'm ready. So I'm on my lonesome, so come by and we'll just hang out. I'll go out and have a bite to eat it. Yeah, I'll let you know what my royalties will be yeah. later on. <laughs> All right, Jared. Yeah, take care. Take care. Okay, keep walking. It's just a few more steps. We're almost there. So here we are at the GLBT History Museum. This is one of my favorite things in the whole neighborhood. And you really should spend a lot of time here when you get a chance. You'll see the, the bullhorn that Harvey Milk gave to me, and which I have loaned to the museum. Let's walk up this hill a little bit. We'll be walking up 18th Street. We're right in front of the pharmacy at Walgreens. And on a good day, Kyle Wong will be working there. He's the boy that keeps me alive. <laughs> I have HIV. As we walk up this hill, I'm preparing myself for the next part of this walk, which is going to be probably the most difficult part for me. What began in June of 1981 with the onset of what we now call HIV AIDS. So just keep walking up 18th Street. We're going to go past Collingwood. We're going to go by the grocery store with the big Castro sign. Hey, Gina. I'm good. How you doing? And if you haven't already figured it out, I know everyone in this neighborhood. <laughs> so by the spring of 1981, I was assigned to work with the Assembly Health Committee. And in June, I went into the office one morning and I saw an article that described 
clusters of homosexual men in Los Angeles and San Francisco who were suffering from a particularly aggressive form of pneumonia called pneumocystis and a strange form of skin cancer called Kaposi's sarcoma. That was the summer of 1981, and by the fall of 1985, almost everyone I knew was dead or dying. So, we're now standing at the corner of Diamond and 18th Street, and imagine a thousand already having died within really six blocks in every direction from where you're standing now. As we've walked around, you've heard me saying hello to people, and I think you probably have a sense of what a tight-knit community this is. So imagine a thousand dead by 1985, and after that we would lose in this neighborhood approximately 2,000 people a year for over 10 years. And many of them spent their last days at coming home hospice. So turn left on Diamond Street on the right, you'll see Most Holy Redeemer Church. And now on your left, you'll see Coming Home Hospice directly across the street from the church. I want you to stop for a minute. This had been a residence for nuns. And the local congregation of the church, as the epidemic worsened, decided that they needed to contribute to uh, this struggle and so the coming home hospice was created and I just can't tell you how many people I said goodbye to in this building over the years but I can tell you that they were all treated with great dignity and love one of the things that's that's uh, sweet about this building is is the stained glass and there's a lot of beautiful woodwork in the building. Even though every time I've walked through the door, it's been to say goodbye to somebody, I always experienced a sense of peace in there and gratitude. We did it well here. So before we leave, look up and beautiful old stained glass windows. And... Uh, Ugh, forget, I can't, I'm gonna lose it. <laughs> okay, what are we doing? We're heading to our last stop now. One last spot that's very dear to me and pretty damn important in the history of this neighborhood, in the history of this country, actually. It's just a few blocks away. So we're gonna head back to 18th Street. So let's just walk down and you'll see the post office up in front on your left, and let's walk. In the early days of the epidemic, the city of San Francisco spent more than the federal government to fight the epidemic. In other places, people were treated horribly and left to die alone on the street. Okay, so now we're at 18th Street, so let's just cross the street, cross the crosswalk, and after you get across the street, turn right and we'll head back down to Castro. We didn't know anything. We didn't know how it was transmitted. We didn't know what caused it. This was before the word AIDS or HIV had been coined. And it was like being under a slow motion avalanche. You, you don't have the sense that it's roaring at you, but it is inexorably taking you. And the panic and the conspiracy theories and people were just terrified. And then it got worse. At one point, I think everybody just kind of realized that, you know, we were all going to die. I know somebody that died in every one of these buildings. As you walk down 18th Street now, we're crossing over Collingwood. And we're back in the entertainment district of the Castro. You're coming up on a bar called Toad Hall. 
Uh, when I was young, that was called the Pendulum, and it was the only specifically African-American gay bar in all of California. Soon after the AIDS crisis started, I was walking down Castro Street and somebody rapped on the window to get my attention. They waved me into the bar. I ordered a beer and Hank kind of nudged Bobby and said, well, come on, show him, show Cleve. And Bobby took off his shoes and socks and showed me the purple spots on his ankle. We took Polaroid photographs of it and he put together a poster. I think it said gay cancer on it. And he put it in the window of Star Pharmacy, which is now Walgreens. On this corner right here, we put it in one of the windows around the corner on Castro Street. So go ahead and turn left here and walk up the slight hill on Castro Street. When we, we put that handmade poster with the photographs of my friend Bobby's ankle and the purple spots on his feet, right here in the windows, like the ones on your left, that was probably the first attempt anywhere in the world to begin to educate people about what we now call HIV-AIDS. So I want you to stop for a second here at this shiny facade on your left. It's 470 Castro Street. And this is the new home of the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. I helped raise money for this building. The problem we have now is a whole new generation. The, the new infections are almost all about, uh, among young men in their early 20s, and they come here to party on the weekends. So this is part of reaching them with prevention information. You can keep walking now towards the big intersection. In 1985, Bob Stemple, who had picked me up on Polk Street when I was 18. You remember, we saw his house up on the stairway in the hills. He was an epidemiologist, and he told me that my blood had been tested. And I said, well, I'm pretty sure I've got it. And he said, you're right. And I lived with that knowledge for a full decade before treatment became available. All of the social infrastructure that the LGBT community today takes for granted really didn't exist then. There were preachers who said that this was, you know, God's revenge, and there were entire congregations of people who received and believed that message. There was a bumper sticker I saw at, that was being sold at a Republican state convention in Long Beach. I think it was in the 84, and it said AIDS. It's killing all the right people. So we're back at the corner of Castro and Market, and we're going to cross Castro Street heading towards Twin Peaks Tavern. But before we get to Twin Peaks, make a sharp left and walk toward Market between the posts and the plants. And on your right is this little plaza where the historic streetcars turn around. 1985, I was just desperate to find a way to try to get people to understand that all of these people that were dying, however you labeled them, were humans. Okay, stop here for a second at the crosswalk that takes us across this big wide street, Market Street. You can take a rest on the little wall here if you want. And while you're doing that, imagine a crowd gathering here for a march with candles. Every year on the night that Harvey and George were killed, people gather at Castro and Market and light candles and walk to City Hall. I started thinking, what can we do, what can we do? I had Harvey's old bullhorn, and I just started talking to the people as they were getting ready to light their candles and, and walk down Market Street. And I said, you know, we're here to remember George and Harvey, but we've lost a lot more than George and Harvey. And I want, would like every one of you to write down the name of someone you know who's been killed by this new disease. And at first people were reluctant. The stigma associated with the disease was so great. And then, People began writing them, their lovers and their boyfriends and their colleagues and co-workers. And soon hundreds and hundreds of people were carrying these signs with these names written on them. Go ahead and cross the street when you've got the light. Be careful though, this is a wide street with lots of cars. We put these posters with the names of our dead friends and neighbors on the wall of the federal building. And I thought to myself, it looks like 
a quilt. Okay, we've crossed the street and now we're turning right onto Market and we're heading in the general direction of downtown. On your left should be the Pottery Barn. People were becoming paralyzed with grief when, when it goes on and on and on and on and there, there doesn't seem any hope. You start to shut down and we couldn't afford that. We couldn't shut down. I told my friends, well, we're going to make a quilt. <laughs> and everybody told me it was the stupidest thing they'd ever heard of, that it would never work. On October 11th, 1987, we unfolded the first display of the quilt in front of the Capitol building with 1,920 panels. My beautiful, beloved son, Eric Martin Minenson, age 22. To my loving son, Anthony Manfredi. Goodbye, my beloved son. As we approach 2362, the sign says catch. But before we even go in the building, you'll also see what looks to be like a broken display sign above the sign for catch. And if you peer between that old sign and the blue awning immediately next to it, you can just make out where it says Kodak. And that is the sign that Harvey Milk installed when he moved his Castro camera store to this front corner of this building. And we're gonna go inside for just a minute. The first thing you'll notice when you come in is on your left, a section of the Names Project AIDS Memorial quilt. And on the table, they keep a copy of a book about the quilt. And as you walk up to the host station, you'll see on the left a really nice portrait of Harvey Milk. Hi, Todd. We get people from all over the world that come to see this. When I had the building, it wasn't serving great seafood. It was full of sewing machines and stacks of fabric, and people would come in after their lover had passed away, and they'd want to be with people. And people would come in to make their own panels. You know, they could barely walk. And they'd come in and sit down at a sewing machine and it's for me, me, I have to make my own because there's nobody left alive to make my quilt panel. Looking back at it now, I think that that quilt had a lot to do with changing the way America looks at AIDS and the way America looks at gay people. And I'm very proud of it and very proud of the thousands and thousands of people who turned it into not only a reality, but a magnificent and extraordinarily beautiful testament to human kindness and love. I'm going to let you go in a moment, but take your time, and when you're ready, come on outside the restaurant so I can say goodbye. There was a time for me when this neighborhood the Castro became a very, very dark and sad place. Death was just everywhere. And after a while, I couldn't take it. I also got sick, and I left the Castro. I went to the Redwood Forest, moved into a little cabin, and got ready to die. But you know, I didn't die. I survived. And as I got stronger, I realized there were many, many more things I wanted to do with my life. And since that time, we have filled these streets with people again and again and again to rally for marriage equality, to protest new laws banning it, to celebrate the Supreme Court decisions protecting our rights. I haven't stopped. Hi, how are you? When I'm in the Castro, I feel safe and protected and appreciated. It has always been the place on earth that most felt like home. Today, especially after so many of my old friends are gone, it's pretty difficult to express how grateful I am to have as many friends as I have. 
and to have them be in my neighborhood so that I get to see them every single day. So safe travels to you all. Bye, Todd. Bye, Clean.